From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, Michael McCall has no regard for whether our personal conversations are over or not. When the clock rolls over, he roll, he starts the show. Well, I guess he's received proper training from his managers, correct? There yeah, we go. Okay. So there we there's the answer right there. Anyway, we'll have to take it up at a later time, I guess. <laughs> Welcome to EWTN's Open Line Friday. You've heard uh, audio evidence that our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, is in the house. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number's 833 833- 288-EWTN, that's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985, and we'll even send you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, the aforementioned Michael McCall, producing the programming and the program, the programming that makes up the program. Matt Gubensky, the one-legged bandit who <laughs> broke his toe. Say a prayer for Matt Gubensky as he continues to recover from his broken toe. I felt very sorry for him as he had to hobble his way with his crutches to Mass. It was rather pitiful and yeah. said a little prayer for him. Offer, offer it better. up, Matt. Offer it up. <laughs> and our celebrity social media maven today is Mr. Ace McKay. So if you're watching us on YouTube or uh, Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday... Our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? Doing pretty good. Well, it's pretty nice out there today, huh? It is humid, not quite, but... Yeah, it's not quite so bad, though. Yeah. We've, we've, we've had worse, and we may yet have worse. Yeah. August is oh, typically the hottest yeah. month. We will, us. for sure. Um, so speaking of open line at EWTN.com, Bill writes in, I would like to submit that some of the difficulty we have in praying the Our Father prayer, even in Mass, is the lack of religious imagery... Of God the Father. There are crucifixes, lambs of God symbols, even Holy Spirit symbols abounding, but rarely Catholic art of God the Father. Who or what do we pray to when we pray to the Our Father? Our greatest church, the Vatican, has a ceiling on the Sistine Chapel that is the world that is world renowned for its image of God the Father touching his fingertip to Adam, the first mm-hmm. human. Why is God the Father so forgotten in all our other churches? Well, I think it's the difficulty of depicting him. Remember, the prohibition of the Old Testament uh, of making a graven image was to try to make uh, the spiritual nature of God uh, into a uh, into some kind of a you know image that we would understand, and it ended up badly in oxen and you know and different things, different religions, but even the the 
the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai wanted to make the graven calf uh, from gold and silver and so no, on. No, they didn't want to. They did. They did. They did, but they demanded it, and, and Aaron, uh, uh, against his better judgment, one would hope, uh, went along with it. So that's the prohibition there. Now, Christ is the image of the Father. He tells us that. Uh, he answers that way to Philip. You know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, and so that prohibition of, of the humanity of Christ is not forbidden to Christians. And generally, and you see this in some of the paintings in which the Father is depicted, that he looks like the Father, except the Father is always depicted uh, as an old man representing his eternity. But you're quite right. Those are very few. And I think there's a shyness to do that uh, since Christ is the incarnation of, of the second person and the image of the eternal Father uh, is what has been given to us as the image of God. Uh, and so we look primarily to that. But you're, you're quite right. Uh, there was a private revelation a number of years ago, which I think received uh, imprimatur in a couple places. You know, it, I don't think it acquired much of a cachet, but it was sort of an interesting thing, which tried to to advance the idea that we needed a feast of the Father, uh, among other things like this. And I don't know where that might go in the church, but that idea has been uh, has been floated and uh, sometimes. Uh, but I think because the, our salvation is through the Son, and it is through the Son that we return to the Father, there are not many images of the Father. But yet we can certainly have a devotion to any of the three persons uh, of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and manifest that in external ways and through things like the image on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. John writes in, Colin, I understand that the Catholic Church denies the doctrine of penal substitution, uh, substitutionary atonement, and by that I mean the penal part. Does she also deny that God must punish sin in order to be a just judge, as, as, as is required by his divine nature? If God must punish sin, and that punishment isn't taken out on behalf uh, God must pu- and okay if God <laughs> must punish sin and that punishment isn't taken on our behalf by Jesus on the cross and if the saved don't bear the punishment who does somebody clearly has to bear the wrath of God which is spoken of in the Bible well obviously in a certain sense that is is Christ but you have to remember, is that what is the motive of the redemption? You know, what is the motive that parents go through many trials and carry many crosses for the sake of their children? It's love. They take it upon themselves, not because their child has, you know, original sin or because their child has personal sin, but because that child. And they would relieve them of any evil that the child suffers, principally spiritual evil, but their material evils. And I think that has become the predominant way of looking at the uh, at the idea of the uh, of the redemption is not as a transaction of justice, but a transaction of love which perfects justice, something which is clearly part of the gospel message. And you can see that uh, I think, in particularly in the uh, theology and philosophy of Pope John Paul II, Carol Wojtyla, in his pre-papal works as well this idea of the self-gift that we make in 
marriage or the self-gift that we make in charity for the poor or the care of our children or our uh, occupations in life and so on. We put ourselves into it. And this is what God did. He pours himself out in the Son, and the Father and the Son pour themselves out in the Holy Spirit. So love is, God is love, as, as the Apostle John tells us. And so love has to be then the primary motivation for understanding the redemption. That where sin is, God wishes to deliver from the suffering that sin causes, which includes justice, the temporal justice and the eternal justice, not to in some kind of, you know, ruthless sense, have his pound of flesh for our sin. We bring on the punishment by our sin. We bring on the total loss of God by dying in sin. But God would relieve it if we would only let him. And he did it first through the cross, and the merits of that are, are, are poured out on, the, on, on humanity. Uh, but it was all done out of love, not out of clearly, not clearly out of a motive of justice, although justice taken up into love is also fulfilled in that act. And uh, finally, we have Joanne who wrote in, I was watching EWTN, and a man said we don't need to be baptized to have original sin forgiven. God did that when he died on the cross. If that is true, why, do we have, why are we required to be baptized to become Catholic? Unless you are born again of water and the Holy Spirit, you shall not enter into eternal life. Christ said this. And the church has interpreted that as a necessity. Now, necessities can be absolute or there can be instrumental. This is a case of one where for those who are aware of the obligation to be baptized, now they must be baptized if they reject that instrument. And it's sort of like, you know, the, the story of, the, of this, the Aramean who went to, you know, to get healed of his sicknesses, and he was told to do something that he thought not extraordinary at all, go down and bathe in the Jordan. You know, not my, aren't my rivers in Syria just as, as worthy? It's not that. It's in the obedience. It's in doing what you are asked. And we are asked to be baptized because this is the way God has chosen to pour out the grace of the redemption into the heart of the, of the, of the new Christian. And in doing that, removing both original sin and even personal sin in the case of those who have it and are baptized as an adult. So we do it because Christ commanded it that God can work outside of what he commands himself, that's a given. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. A brand new offering for August from EWTN Publishing, The Mystery of Divine Love by Father Wojciech Giertek. Father Giertek, the theologian for the Pontifical Household, aspires to nothing less than giving you intimate eye contact with God. Father Giertek reveals how to cultivate the theological and moral virtues in your daily life, how Christ shows us the face of the Father, 
in his paternal heart, and much, much more. The Divine, the Mystery of Divine Love by Father Wojciech Giertek. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up today is Adam, a first-time caller in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Adam, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. I'm wondering about this week's second reading at Mass. It mm-hmm. references Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dwelt together in a tent. And we were talking this morning and wondering whether when Abraham was taking Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him, if he had Jacob at that point or not. Uh, no, because you're looking at lineal descent there. The son of Abraham and the son of Jacob, Israel. So I think that's um, references uh, Abraham. Did I say Israel? I meant Isaac. Yeah, yeah. I Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you have father, son, and grandson. All right. Okay. Does that help? Yeah, that clears it up. <laughs> okay. Sure. Uh, we also have a caller in uh, Michael, and we've got Spokane there. Good afternoon, uh, Michael. Yeah, thank you both for taking my call. Uh, great weather in Spokane today, 85, and then lows 50s. We don't have that humidity, so it's going to be hot next week. Well, that's my good. Question, yeah. <laughs> the dry eastern part of Washington State, I remember it well from when I lived in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You got it. You got it. Spokane. Yeah, we love the Mariners. Gonzaga basketball. <laughs> well, my <laughs> number one right now, we hope, Gonzaga. Um, my question is, I, how do you explain the existence of God um, to someone who doesn't believe? I've heard yeah, that yeah. Well, I think the, the best way is to look at it as probably the first person to propose a philosophical explanation of it did, and that's Aristotle. Um, actually, you could say God himself proposed it when he said to Moses about almost a thousand years before Aristotle lived, he said uh, that uh, when he was asked his name, he said, I am who am. In other words, he referenced uh, something which philosophers a thousand years later and two thousand more after that uh, have understood as being the you know, the primary natural or, or the nature of God is to be, and that is existence. And Aristotle got to it this way, because he understood, as scientists understand today, that everything has a cause, nothing springs from nothing without a cause. And because looking at our universe around us, we see a multitude of causes. We know the, you know, if you're trying to uh, trace a cause today, uh, you're, you know, what's the cause of Colin being on, you know, open line this afternoon and speaking? Well, the cause of my existence is my parents, and you go back to the multitudes of layers of ancestors all the way back to the beginning. Uh, but before that, they had to come from somewhere, and before that, you know, at the natural things around us. So everything has a cause. 
And Aristotle saw that the causation required for the existence of the world and all things in it and its continuation was effectively infinite. And so the cause of all of that had to be an infinite being, an infinite cause. And so he referred to what we call God as the first cause. And it surprisingly corresponds to exactly the name that uh, God revealed to Moses. I am who am. He is the infinite cause of everything there is. Now, take some parallel comparisons there. You know, you hear a lot of things, the relationship, well, string theory might permit multiverses, for example. Or you go back to the Big Bang. Uh, is there something in quantum physics that would explain how s something came out of nothing? Or we know about particles uh, coming to be and some annihilating and others not. And in this way, the universe is populated with not dark matter, which is one possibility, but with, with the matter that we know. And so physics has a lot of ways of looking at this, and all of it goes back to a beginning for which they have no explanation but many theories. But a theory must proceed according to a law. What would cause a theory to, be, to work? What would cause the laws of quantum mechanics to work? What would cause the laws of multiverses to work? What caused the laws which enabled the universe to begin in a, as a, you know, uh, something about the size of a pencil dot and expand to be and continue as big as it is now and continue to go. You always get back to there had to be something pre-existing the reality that we know, whether explained by religion or by philosophy or by science. And different cultures call give that different names. The non-Christian cultures, they're not Judeo-Christian cultures, they look for it in the creatures around them, and so they deify the creatures or they deify, deify the, the things like the wind and the air and the light and so on. So there, we have innately within us this looking and seeking for the infinite, and it can be improperly directed to the things around us, or it can be properly directed to God. So public revelation, both to Israel and through Christ, is to give a true direction to that and to point to that first cause God, whom the Israelites knew simply as, you know, uh, Yahweh, and whom we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because there's a, actually a truth that explains things in the Trinity as well. And so existence, you have to have an explanation for it. And material explanations will ultimately be unsatisfying because where does the cause come from? Well, I think Stephen Hawking sort of gave us the nub of this when he proposed his M theory, which was that basically the universe was self-creating. <laughs> basically, that made the universe God by whatever name you want to give it, self-existing, self-creating, or whatever. So physicists are ultimately, and really Hawking's is one of the few who has actually grappled with this side of it, have to come to a similar conclusion. It doesn't come from nothing. So it either somehow creates itself or there is something that created it. And then you can get into all of the other explanations, all of the anthropomorphic explanations of physics and see that, you know, in the end, the uniqueness of the human race, whether there are, you know, civilizations beyond our, what we know in other galaxies or so on is irrelevant to the question. 
the likelihood of life is so small that the um, one of the British atheists, the uh, astronomers uh, Hoyle, uh, Professor Hoyle, in the 1940s, he laughed at the idea of trying to explain evolution as a mathematical thing. You know, the 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 monkeys on the typewriter, or the you get enough chances that man life comes about. He said that was nonsense. Now he wasn't a believer. He just said that the math doesn't work out. And so all the efforts to explain it mathematically as a necessity aren't don't work out either. And so in the end, you're back to how did everything begin? What is the cause of, of it? And I think you end up asking the question not what is the cause, but who is the cause? And we know who the cause is. It's God. And Aristotle, in his own philosophical way, uh, understood that 2,300 years ago. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Pick up the phone and give us a call here on Open Line Friday. David would like to know, can you please explain the theological basis for the phrase addressed to the Virgin Mary in the Salve Regina, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. <laughs> There's a book that does that, and I forget the name of it. You know what? A lot of these kinds of expressions, you could think of the warm feelings that we have for our own mothers or our spouses if we're married. And we say things like, I just adore you. There the language is poetic. And it would certainly, these kinds of things are, in that sense, poetic with regard to Our Lady. But Christ is our hope. But what if Mary has said no? Can't we say that the, the hope we have in Christ is also connected to the hope that we have in Our Lady who said yes to that angel? And from there, in a way, these are less problematic ones. Uh, sweetness is just a, a superlative that can be used of someone we love. And we ought to love our mother, Mary, above all other uh, women, indeed other creatures. Um, and our life the same way, that Christ is not just our Savior, but he's also the image of God through whom, as St. Paul tells us, the universe was made. And so... In many ways, the creation of the universe, the incarnation and Mary's role in it was foreknown even before that. And so seeing the beauty of the two together, the Father creates. So there's a way to understand that too without surplanting Christ, without surplanting God. But in the will of the Father, in the will of God, the necessity of Our Lady in conjunction with her Son, or you might say, she, her son primarily, and she cooperatively, uh, sharing in those prerogatives of giving us life in some vision of the perfect creature that God had, in giving us hope in the, in the, uh, in, in the redemption, incarnation of redemption. Uh, and then perhaps the other could be the sweetness of the Holy Spirit bringing us back in the eternity with God and how sweet and beautiful you know, if you're trying to give it a little Trinitarian spin, how sweet and beautiful uh, that's going to be. So there's a lot of ways in seeing Our Lady connected to the works of the Trinity in creation 
And I think, I don't know if that's the logic of its construction or not. And I know there's a book out there, somebody can remember it. Um, but I think that would be a way of looking at it too. But always within that context of Mary's subsidiary role in all of these things. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. We've got a couple of open lines here at 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. I want to give a big congratulations to a member of the EWTN Radio family, Fairmont Area Catholic Radio, uh, KYEF 90.1 FM in Fairmont, Minnesota, celebrating seven years with EWTN Radio this week. Our uh, thanks to Steve Landsteiner and his great team at KYEF for seven years of solid Catholic radio programming with EWTN. And apparently um, Alphonsus Liguori wrote a book. He did, yeah. I think it's called uh, The Salve Regina. Hail, Hail Holy Queen. Hail Holy Queen in the English of that. So if you can find that out there, you could check our religious catalog to, to start with. I know we have a number of Liguori's works, uh, but somebody will have it. And I don't know if it addresses it the way I did, but that was my speculation on the why those expressions. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next stop for us is Woodstock, Georgia. Ray Ann is in Woodstock listening on the EWTN app. Ray Ann, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. Hello, Ray Ann. What's your question today, dear? Um, I am wondering, uh, my father has died about 10 years ago, and mm-hmm. when I pray the um, Divine Mercy Chaplet each day, well, I know he doesn't have any, anybody to pray for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have inserted his name, uh, when we say the part of the chaplet, have mercy on us, I, I insert my dad's name, and I'm wondering if, it's, if that's okay, and also if it's okay to do it repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Well, it, is that the only way you say the chaplet? No. Okay. No. Yeah, because I think an exclusive use of the chaplet that way wouldn't necessarily be wrong. But you have to remember also why our Lord, through St. Faustina, you know, asked for it. It's to pray for the whole world. Uh, it, I, don't, I don't think that it's wrong to do that. I think a person particularly concerned about salvation of an individual could certainly do that. Um, but only, only in that way probably, you know, isn't exactly what the Lord was asking. Uh, you could also say it in the conventional way and just make that as an intention at the beginning. It's often how our family does. We'll pray, say for, for the, and particularly for this individual, because we're praying for, you know, basically the whole world, but in particular for my dad or my grandmother or, or my friend Kathy or whatever it might be. Um, that would be a way to do it as well. But I think, is it wrong? I don't know, but uh, I think there might be a better way to go about that. Does that help, Rayanne? Yeah, it sure does. Thank you. All right, thank you. We appreciate the phone call. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Connie is in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio today. Connie, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin Donovan. Um, <laughs> Hello, I, Connie. <laughs> I, I'm kind of a quasi-sacristan at our church. Okay. And there's kind of a side, there's a side, a corporal on the mm-hmm. altar at where right. they set the vessels. And Monsignor, when he uh, when he pours the wine into the chalice on that on that corporal, some get spilled occasionally, especially when we have visitors. Mm-hmm. They'll spill that. Now, Monsignor, I wash that corporal. Monsignor says not to worry. That wine that is not consecrated. I thought anything on the altar was consecrated. So I need I need that question answered. <laughs> okay. Um. Let's sort of look at that broadly. When you when something is consecrated, of course, it's Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Whether it's the species of consecrated bread or the species of consecrated wine. So, if the priest has handled a consecrated species on the corporal, the main corporal, for example, then there's a particular way that has to be handled because. Empirically and observationally, you can't tell that this is consecrated or not. That's the whole idea of a sacrament. It's the appearances of bread and wine, but it's really Christ. So in every sacristy, you no doubt have the sink that goes into the ground as opposed into the sewer system. So anything that has contact with the, uh, with the, the sacred vessels the, the, that hasn't been purified by the priest on the altar. So they, they purify the vessels at the end of the Mass, okay? And so those can be ordinarily washed, say, in the, uh, in the sacristy, although I know sacristans who will wash it a second time and then give it, the, if they want to use a, a soapy washing or something, do it a, a third time, and not in the sink that goes into the ground, but in a regular sink. So what you, you have to do is respect the consecrated nature and if the priest doesn't purify a vessel, then you do it uh, in that special uh, special sacristy or in that special sink. Or if he does, then you could also wash it once there. In the case of the corporal, there's the corporal that the consecrated species are on. And very often the priest will use another corporal where the water and the wine are kept. If that's what the Monsignor is referring to, then yes, that could not does not require any special you know, washing in that sink that goes directly into the ground because it's uncon. If the wine is spilled as he's pouring it into the chalice is one thing, but if after it's consecrated it's spilled, or if even before it's consecrated it's spilled on that corporal in the middle, I wouldn't assume that that's a pre-consecrated spillage. If you, if it's on that corporal, it gets a special treatment. If it's at the side then it is likely or, or shouldn't be normally um, be consecrated wine. So that's the distinction he's making, if, if that explains the context in which he said it. Does that do it? Yeah, it helps. It, it answers my question. Yeah. So your concern is that any corporal that's used under consecrated species at any time in the Mass should be specially treated and if it's just on the side for the washing and the pouring in at the beginning of the offertory, then, then that's a different matter. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Tricia, a first-time caller in Kenosha, Wisconsin, listening on WSFI out of Antioch, Illinois. Tricia, Tricia, excuse me, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Hello, Tricia. My question question for you is how does the the church view whole-body donation upon death? Uh, positively. Um, I could tell you a little story about that. Actually, my dad, before he decided he didn't want to follow, go do what his parents thought he ought to do and go into law or medicine, uh, he was in the medical school at uh, Creighton University. It's a Jesuit-run Catholic university. And <laughs> is it well, never back, in never back in the 30s? Back in the 30s. Let's let's answer better. your question that so way. In the 30s, it was not an oxymoron. <laughs> anyway, um, and so in the 30s, and he remembers pathology class where they had the human cadavers that they had to. So uh, the church recognizes. I, I think originally back in the 1300s or so when. I forget who the guy was who sort of thought it would be a good idea to, you know, dissect the human body to find out what caused, you know, something to fail or that. Uh, And at first the church was very reluctant, as she often is on things, you know, something new here, let's wait a minute. What about the resurrection of the dead? How are we going to deal with this? Eventually it comes to sort through those questions and it says, that's fine. And so uh, that goes on all, all, uh, all the time. And so there's, there is nothing uh, wrong with whole, whole body donation. Uh, what you want to be sure is that it's going to an institution that will respect, and presumably Catholic medical schools will have that respect. Uh, but it's something to ascertain if that's you know an, in, an inclination you have that it will be treated with or that is respect to a body uh, in the way that the church would, and then receive after it has uh, provided the educational value to the med students that it's intended to do, that it receives a fitting burial. That's an important element of that. Is that good, Tricia? It does. It answers my question. It's what's nice. actually not for me. It's for my dad, and I. those were his wishes, and so I just kind of wanted to know more about it. Awesome. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. And, three, and I know a Jesuit priest relative who actually did that when he died. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next stop is San Antonio, Texas. Robert is in San Antonio listening on Guadalupe Radio. Robert, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yes, hello. Yeah, I was at a parish meeting last night, and the pastor asked for lay volunteers to carry the priest's blessing for him to people for home blessings or enthronement. Is that possible? Uh, I would say not. Um, He's the priest. He gives the blessing. Now, the Church has made some exceptions for blessings at a distance, uh, going back to, um, I think it was Benedict XV, the Benedict before our most recent Benedict, when Marconi invented the radio and the church determined that if the Pope, and of course today we understand if any priest, by radio, t- live radio, TV, or live internet, the Pope blesses or a priest blesses, such as in our daily Mass, the, you can receive the blessing given live electronically, not the taped 
blessing at the re-airing of the Mass or so on, but the first time given live. Uh, but there you have a means of, uh, of transmission. Uh, I, th- I think that that's uh, theological, d- many theological difficulties with that idea. Now, a priest obviously can bless objects, and we have a sacramental. Uh, a, police, a priest can give, have layperson dispense uh, ashes on Ash Wednesday that he has blessed. So the ashes could be carried in, uh, you know, home and you, your children or the say during COVID, I think people actually were, were doing this who could get to mass and get at bless, blessed ashes. Then they could, they could uh, have the faculty or have the privilege of bringing that to their families and, and, and blessing them with that. But it's the sacramental there. Uh, I, I, I think that that's, that would require some explanation and I don't see one, frankly. Thanks, Robert. We appreciate the call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Chris driving through the great state of West Virginia, listening to Light of Life Radio. Chris, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Hello, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I was raised Catholic and currently Mm -hmm. Episcopalian, and we but I'm not saying we are actually practicing as maybe as much as we should be. But I do really appreciate what you're we're saying about the size of the universe, and my question is because with the recent discoveries with the Hubble, which took photos of the darkest spot, and we thought there were stars, and they were not stars, they were galaxies. And now with the James Webb Telescope confirming, there's probably more galaxies in this universe than grains of sand on planet Earth. So when you were saying that statistically, there are probably many planets with life on them in this massive universe. I am not saying they are humans or further children of God. But I, I did you hear you say that somebody said statistically this is probably not possible from 1940 or 44. But with the latest information from the James Webb Telescope, there's probably life on other Earth-style planets. And so I do appreciate your mm-hmm. comments about Aristotle, who... so. Maybe I'm just adding that for, and maybe you've sure. seen the latest images from James Webb, but the size of this universe is now immense. Well, actually, the size of the universe is the same as it was before Hubble and Webb. It's about 13.8 to 15 or so. They're not sure the exact size. Uh, light years across, light years, or at least the furthest distance that we see, or the age of the universe, which also tells us then the size of the universe. So th- there's really nothing new in that. I'm just my my point is that the church has no trouble with the physics of that. Uh, actually, uh, cosmology is a big discussion in our department because my colleague Noah Webb and I, Noah Noah Webb, Noah Led and I. <laughs> Uh, Noah's working on his own telescope. <laughs> no, no, he's working on. We'll we'll call it the the uh, Let telescope, maybe. But uh, anyway, so th- those aren't issues. 
Um, it wasn't me who said that. It was Fred Hoyle, uh, who was considered one of the uh, modern founders of modern astronomy. Uh, and so he, he did that. And there, and there are various calculations that have been made when you take in all of the, the laws of the universe, the things that have to occur for life, the possibility of life. And the church doesn't have any problem with that. Many people think that the Bible means that univocally there's only the earth and there's only man. Uh, that's probably the case, but that doesn't mean that it's a necessity. Uh, and so many over the centuries have actually pondered whether there could be life outside uh, 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 of earth. And in fact, among the people who said, asked the question whether Christ could have many incarnations, the, the, uh, the, the Godhead is capable of incarnating in, in the second person in, in many ways uh, with, with other creatures. So we know he incarnated with human beings. We don't know what else he did. Uh, so these kinds of questions are open questions, and Christians needn't be afraid of little green men showing and blowing up the, you know, the belief in God. There's just no necessity there. Uh, so whatever happens in that respect. So, uh, yeah, and Webb is fantastic. It's not showing us things that aren't there. It's looking in the infrared, and it's seeing things that are earlier than anything we've ever seen. And it's seeing that the numbers, uh, you know, what you said, uh, Chris, is true. The numbers of galaxies are far greater than we thought. But the mathematics is not largely built on that, although that weighs into the statistical question. But also all of the laws and all of the things that have to happen in order for life to come about. Doesn't mean it didn't come about somewhere else. It just seems that there is no necessity that it did. And I think that's what Hoyle was uh, was pointing to. Uh, and, I, and I think we just wait and see if somebody ever shows up and said they're from, from distant galaxy. But I, I know recently some scientists said that even if an advanced galaxies could probably not get to us from any other place in the universe. Uh, so who knows what might happen in the future. But that has no effect on our need for Christ and our need for salvation uh, and the, the history of this little planet on which we do live uh, and of which we know the most. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Be sure to check out the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass every single day, with the exception of Good Friday, from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel right here, 8 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Uh, next up is Kent in the Republic of Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Kent, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Hey, Kent. What's your question today? Well, my question, as I said to the screener, was uh, about a couple that I know that uh, they both were married. One is waiting for an annulment. Uh, the other one has had her marriage annulled. Uh, but they've been living together. Uh, one day they talked to a priest at a uh, during mass and said that they felt bad that they were because they weren't married. Uh, one day explained the situation and the priest told them basically, uh, hold your hands. He announced, uh, said a blessing over them, and pronounced that they were married. So these, this poor couple believes that they are married, and uh, I'm not sure if that's true. And if not, what can we do to help them out? 
And I, yeah, thanks, Kent, for the question. Colin's going to answer that. I did want to just make one slight clarification, simply because in these matters, language is really important. And yeah. I think that the annulment process is somewhat misunderstood because of our lack of good language. So I think it should be noted at the front end of this that no marriage has ever been annulled. No. An annulment is a declaration that a marriage never right. existed. It's a formal title is decree of nullity. Yes. In other words, the judgment has been reached uh, based on the evidence, based on investigation, that the individual is free to marry. That's all it decides. It decides that this person was never married, and now so they're free to marry if they've never been married. That's the, you know, two unmarried people can marry and form a valid marriage uh, in nature, but in that nature of baptized people is also a sacrament. So... Um, uh, it's on the surf, on uh, not on the surface, but just what's the word I'm looking for here. On the face of it. On the face, that's the word. Prima facie. <laughs> that's not. They're not unmarried. <laughs> they're not annulled. She's annulled because the church has looked with honesty and integrity. One always hopes, and I think in most cases that's going to be true, and has concluded there was some fault in one of the parties, and sometimes in both, that they did not validly marry. To exclude unity by, well, I can always get married if this doesn't work out, that would be invalidating. To exclude children, uh, uh, you know, exceptionlessly, uh, that would be invalidating. So those are the two purposes, the two ends, the two meanings, any name you want to give them, of marriages, and that it would be invalidating to hold one of those hostage uh, by saying, I'm, I'm, you know, that's not part of why I'm marrying. So that has to be determined, and it's determined on facts. It's determined on the judgment of a tribunal. Uh, and then the person has said, you're free to marry in the Catholic Church. They would not be free to marry in the Catholic Church. Now, the one who has had the annulment is free to marry, but just not him, somebody who has never been married or similarly has an annulment. So they have to get that corrected. Uh, they, will get a, they will get a formal statement of it. Uh, no priest has the faculty to, to do that judgment in the back of the church after Mass with a blessing. Uh, there's ipso facto, no, they're, they're not. He's the, the party that has not gotten annulment is not free to marry. Thanks, Kent. We appreciate the phone call. Uh, Joanna writes in, I have an uncle who has engaged the family in a debate about artificial insemination, and I need advice from an expert to help respond. He points out how Donum Vitae says that there is quote-unquote an exception for those cases in which the technical means is not a substitute for the conjugal act, but serves to facilitate and to help so that the act attains its natural purpose. The rest of us cannot figure out how this is licit in any circumstance. For example, wouldn't the sperm need to be procured by illicit means? And how can you inseminate a wife in a way that facilitates the conjugal act if insemination is performed in a hospital or a clinic? Any advice is appreciated. I want our family to understand our faith properly. Yeah, there there are two ways, and that is with partners who are heterologous, I think, and homologous, where you have partners that are married to each other and where you're getting different sources, so the wife gets the sperm of some unknown man. Um, but this, 
the, the, there are definitely difficulties, and it's a very complex area, area which involves the means. I would say the best source, since they will be the ones most knowledgeable in the what is technically being proposed and what is technically possible, is the National Catholic Bioethics Center. So I, I think that's the fitting place to, um, uh, to, to look for the answer to that. And so clearly it can, the means that are available in such cases are not a substitution uh, for the act, but they somehow facilitate the act is my understanding of it. But just exactly the specifics of what is proposed to be done is what is key to that question. Uh, and I think the National Catholics Bioethics Center is the best place to find information on what is listed in that and what is not. And you can find them at ncbcenter.org. That's ncbcenter.org. And uh, let's see here in the final minute or two we have remaining, if there's a, as Father Mitch said, there are short questions. There just are not very many short answers. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, here's here, this one could be a quick one. I've run into questions from non-Catholics asking me of my talents. They're asking me if I'm, a, if I'm a single talent or if God has called me to be a five-talent apostle. <laughs> I'm confused on the five talents, and I also understand about being an apostle, which I usually respond that I'm working to be a saint, not just an apostle, and he'd really like to know uh, how to better answer this question about the talents. Well, everybody has their gifts if you go by what our Lord says. You have your talents. Don't bury them in the ground, but you use them. Uh, so I, I guess they're asking you what you think your talents, your gifts, or your charisms are in the language of uh, 1 Corinthians 12, what, what do you bring to the church and to evangelization? Um, apostles, of course, we restrict to the, the 12, and we restrict to the apostolic office, but it is a good generic term to evangelize, evangelizing others, and so I think that's what they're referring to. The one and the five uh, have no idea. It's obviously some somebody's idea. An analogy to currency is what it probably is. Oh, is it? Yeah, okay. Are you a little are you a little evangelizer or are you into it full time and throwing yourself into it and giving it all you got? Well, that's a good question, but there's also circumstantial things we ask ourselves. You know, I've got family, how am I going to do it? On behalf of our host Colin Donovan, producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubinski and social media Maven Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams back at it next week. Until then, God bless.